Section 14 of White Knights and Other Stories by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew David King. Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated from the Russian by Constance Garnett. Part two, apropos of the wet snow. Chapter seven. Oh, hush, Liza. How can you talk about being like a book when it makes even me, an outsider, feel sick? Though I don't look at it as an outsider, for indeed it touches me to the heart. Is it possible? Is it possible that you do not feel sick at being here yourself? Evidently habit does wonders. God knows what habit can do with anyone. Can you seriously think that you will never grow old, that you will always be good-looking, and that they will keep you here forever and ever? I say nothing of the loathsomeness of the life here, but let me tell you this about it, about your present life, I mean. Here, though, you are young now, attractive, nice, with soul and feeling, yet you know, as soon as I came to myself just now, I felt at once sick at being here with you. One can only come here when one is drunk. But if you are anywhere else, living as good people live, I should perhaps be more than attracted by you, should fall in love with you, should be glad of a look from you, let alone a word. I should hang about your door, should go down on my knees to you, should look upon you as my betrothed and think it an honor to be allowed to. I should not dare to have an impure thought about you. But here, you see, I know that I have only to whistle, and you have to come with me whether you like it or not. I don't consult your wishes, but you mine. The lowest laborer hires himself as a workman, but he doesn't make a slave of himself altogether. Besides, he knows that he will be free again presently. But when are you free? Only think what you are giving up here. What is it you are making a slave of? It is your soul together with your body. You are selling your soul which you have no right to dispose of. You give your love to be outraged by every drunkard. Love, but that's everything, you know. It's a priceless diamond. It's a maiden's treasure, love. Why, a man would be ready to give his soul, to face death to gain that love. But how much is your love worth now? You are sold, all of you, body and soul. And there is no need to strive for love, and you can have everything without love. And you know there is no greater insult to a girl than that, do you understand? To be sure, I have heard that they comfort you, poor fools. They let you have lovers of your own here. But you know that's simply a farce. That's simply a sham. It's just laughing at you, and you are taken in by it. Why, do you suppose he really loves you, that lover of yours? I don't believe it. How can he love you when he knows you may be called away from him any minute? He would be a low fellow if he did. Will he have a grain of respect for you? What have you in common with him? He laughs at you and robs you. That is all his love amounts to. You are lucky if he does not beat you. Very likely he does beat you, too. Ask him, if you have got one, whether he will marry you. He will laugh in your face if he doesn't spit in it or give you a blow. But maybe he is not worth a bad half-penny himself. And for what have you ruined your life, if you come to think of it? For the coffee that they give you to drink and the plentiful meals? But with what object are they feeding you up? 
An honest girl couldn't swallow the food, or she would know what she was being fed for. You are in debt here, and, of course, you will always be in debt, and you will go on in debt to the end, till the visitors here begin to scorn you. And that will soon happen. Don't rely upon your youth. All that flies by express train here, you know. You will be kicked out. Not simply kicked out. Long before that, she'll begin nagging at you, scolding you, abusing you, as though you had not sacrificed your health for her, had not thrown away your youth and your soul for her benefit, but as though you had ruined her, beggared her, robbed her. And don't expect anyone to take your part. The others, your companions, will attack you, too, win her favor, for all are in slavery here, and have lost all conscience and pity here long ago. They have become utterly vile, and nothing on earth is viler, more loathsome, and more insulting than their abuse. And you are laying down everything here, unconditionally, youth and health and beauty and hope, and at twenty-two you will look like a woman of five and thirty, and you will be lucky if you are not diseased, pray to God for that. No doubt you are thinking now that you have a gay time and no work to do. Yet there is no work harder or more dreadful in the world or ever has been. One would think that the heart alone would be worn out with tears. And you won't dare to say a word, not half a word, when they drive you away from here. You will go away as though you were to blame. You will change to another house, then to a third, then somewhere else, till you come down at last to the haymarket. There you will be beaten at every turn. That is good manners there. The visitors don't know how to be friendly without beating you. You don't believe that it is so hateful there? Go and look for yourself sometime. You can see with your own eyes. Once, one New Year's Day, I saw a woman at a door. They had turned her out as a joke to give her a taste of the frost because she had been crying so much, and they shut the door behind her. At nine o'clock in the morning, she was already quite drunk, disheveled, half-naked, covered with bruises, her face was powdered, but she had a black eye. Blood was trickling from her nose and her teeth. Some cabman had just given her a drubbing. She was sitting on the stone steps. A salt fish of some sort was in her hand. She was crying, wailing something about her luck and beating with the fish on the steps. And cabmen and drunken soldiers were crowding in the doorway, taunting her. You don't believe that you will ever be like that? I should be sorry to believe it, too. But how do you know? Maybe ten years, eight years ago, that very woman with the salt fish came here fresh as a cherub. Innocent, pure, knowing no evil, blushing at every word. Perhaps she was like you, proud, ready to take offense, not like the others. Perhaps she looked like a queen and knew what happiness was in store for the man who should love her and whom she should love. Do you see how it ended? And what if at that very minute when she was beating on the filthy steps with that fish, drunken and disheveled, what if at that very minute she recalled the pure early days in her father's house, when she used to go to school and the neighbor's son watched for her on the way, declaring that he would love her as long as he lived, that he would devote his life to her, and when they vowed to love one another forever and be married as soon as they were grown up? No, Liza, it would be happy for you if you were to die soon of consumption in some corner, in some cellar like that woman just now. In the hospital, do you say? You will be lucky if they take you. But what if you are still of use to the madam here? Consumption is a queer disease. It is not like fever. The patient goes on hoping till the last minute and says he is all right. 
he deludes himself, and that just suits your madam. Don't doubt it, that's how it is. You have sold your soul, and what is more, you owe money, so you daren't say a word. But when you are dying, all will abandon you, all will turn away from you, for then there will be nothing to get from you. What's more, they will reproach you for cumbering the place, for being so long over dying. However you beg, you won't get a drink of water without abuse. Whenever are you going off, you nasty hussy? You won't let us sleep with your moaning. You make the gentleman sick. That's true, I have heard such things said myself. They will thrust you dying into the filthiest corner in the cellar, in the damp and the darkness. What will your thoughts be, lying there alone? When you die, strange hands will lay you out, with grumbling and impatience. No one will bless you. No one will sigh for you. They only want to get rid of you as soon as may be. They will buy a coffin, take you to the grave, as they did that poor woman today, and celebrate your memory at the tavern. In the grave, sleet, filth, wet snow, no need to put themselves out for you. Let her down, Venuha. It's just like her luck. Even here she is head foremost, a hussy. Shorten the cord, you rascal. It's all right as it is. All right, is it? Why, she's on her side. She was a fellow creature, after all. But never mind, throw the earth on her. And they won't care to waste much time quarreling over you. They will scatter the wet blue clay as quick as they can and go off to the tavern. And there your memory on earth will end. Other women have children to go to their graves, fathers, husbands. Well, for you, neither tear nor sigh nor remembrance. No one in the whole world will ever come to you. Your name will vanish from the face of the earth, as though you had never existed, never been born at all. Nothing but filth and mud, however you knock at your coffin lid at night, when the dead arise, however you cry, let me out, kind people, to live in the light of day. My life was no life at all. My life has been thrown away like a dish clout. It was drunk away in the tavern at the hay market. Let me out, kind people, to live in the world again. And I worked myself up to such a pitch that I began to have a lump in my throat myself. And all at once I stopped, sat up in dismay, and, bending over apprehensively, began to listen with a beating heart. I had reason to be troubled. I had felt for some time that I was turning her soul upside down and rending her heart, and, and the more I was convinced of it, the more eagerly I desired to gain my object as quickly and as effectually as possible. It was the exercise of my skill that carried me away, yet it was not merely sport. I knew I was speaking stiffly, artificially, even bookishly, in fact. I could not speak except like a book. But that did not trouble me, I knew. I felt that I should be understood and that this very bookishness might be an assistance. But now, having attained my effect, I was suddenly panic-stricken. Never before had I witnessed such despair. She was lying on her face, thrusting her face into the pillow and clutching it in both hands. Her heart was being torn. Her youthful body was shuddering all over as though in convulsions. Suppressed sobs rent her bosom and suddenly burst out in weeping and wailing. Then she pressed closer into the pillow. She did not want anyone here, not a living soul, to know of her anguish and her tears. She bit the pillow, bit her hand till it bled. I saw that afterwards or, thrusting her fingers into her disheveled hair, 
seemed rigid with the effort of restraint, holding her breath and clenching her teeth. I began saying something, begging her to calm herself, but felt that I did not dare. And, all at once, in a sort of cold shiver, almost in terror, began fumbling in the dark, trying hurriedly to get dressed to go. It was dark, though I tried my best I could not finish dressing quickly. Suddenly I felt a box of matches and a candlestick with a whole candle in it. As soon as the room was lighted up, Liza sprang up, sat up in bed, and with a contorted face, with a half-insane smile, looked at me almost senselessly. I sat down beside her and took her hands. She came to herself, made an impulsive movement towards me, would have caught hold of me but did not dare, and slowly bowed her head before me. Liza, my dear, I was wrong. Forgive me, my dear, I began, but she squeezed my hand in her fingers so tightly that I felt I was saying the wrong thing and stopped. This is my address, Liza. Come to me. I will come, she answered resolutely, her head still bowed. But now I am going. Goodbye, till we meet again. I got up. She, too, stood up and suddenly flushed all over, gave a shudder, snatched up a shawl that was lying on a chair and muffled herself in it to her chin. As she did this, she gave another sickly smile, blushed and looked at me strangely. I felt wretched. I was in haste to get away, to disappear. Wait a minute, she said suddenly, in the passage just at the doorway, stopping me with her hand on my overcoat. She put down the candle in hot haste and ran off. Evidently she had thought of something or wanted to show me something. As she ran away she flushed, her eyes shone, and there was a smile on her lips. What was the meaning of it? Against my will I waited. She came back a minute later with an expression that seemed to ask forgiveness for something. In fact, it was not the same face, not the same look as the evening before, sullen, mistrustful, and obstinate. Her eyes now were imploring, soft, and at the same time trustful, caressing, timid. The expression with which children look at people they are very fond of, of whom they are asking a favor. Her eyes were a light hazel, they were lovely eyes, full of life and capable of expressing love as well as sullen hatred. Making no explanation, as though I, as a sort of higher being, must understand everything without explanations, she held out a piece of paper to me. Her whole face was positively beaming at that instant with naive, almost childish triumph. I unfolded it. It was a letter to her from a medical student or someone of that sort, a very high-flown and flowery but extremely respectful love letter. I don't recall the words now, but I remember well that through the high-flown phrases there was apparent a genuine feeling which cannot be feigned. When I had finished reading it, I met her glowing, questioning, and childishly impatient eyes fixed upon me. She fastened her eyes upon my face and waited impatiently for what I should say. In a few words, hurriedly, but with a sort of joy and pride, she explained to me that she had been to a dance somewhere, in a private house, a family of very nice people, who knew nothing, absolutely nothing, for she had only come here so lately, and it had all happened. And she hadn't made up her mind to stay, and was certainly going away as soon as she had paid her debt. And at that party there had been the student who had danced with her all the evening. 
he talked to her and it turned out that he had known her in old days at riga when he was a child they had played together but a very long time ago and he knew her parents but about this he knew nothing nothing whatever and had no suspicion and the day after the dance three days ago he had sent her that letter through the friend with whom she had gone to the party and well that was all she dropped her shining eyes with a sort of bashfulness as she finished the poor girl was keeping that student's letter as a precious treasure and had run to fetch it her only treasure because she did not want me to go away without knowing that she too was honestly and genuinely loved that she too was addressed respectfully no doubt that letter was destined to lie in her box and lead to nothing but nonetheless i am certain that she would keep it all her life as a precious treasure as her pride and justification and now at such a minute she had thought of that letter and brought it with naive pride to raise herself in my eyes that i might see that i too might think well of her i said nothing pressed her hand and went out i so longed to get away i walked all the way home in spite of the fact that the melting snow was still falling in heavy flakes i was exhausted shattered in bewilderment but behind the bewilderment the truth was already gleaming the loathsome truth end of chapter seven recording by andrew david king find me online at www.andrewdavidking.com